Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. Enjoy the show. It should be an excellent school in every community. And I'm Scott Lewis. I'm Laura Cohn. Hi, Laura Cohn. Hello, Scott Lewis. We are full of tacos, salsa, <laughs> a little guacamole, because we are bidding farewell to our friend, and a colleague here at Voice of San Diego, Mario Coran. Mario is in studio. Welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. <laughs> um, this is uh, bittersweet. Obviously, we're uh, uh, happy for Mario's moving to Wisconsin with his family, but also uh, an end to a great run here in San Diego. Can't think of very many reporters who have had as much impact in such a short period of time as he has. Uh, Mario, tell us uh, a little bit about where you're going and why. So I'm, uh, I'm headed to Wisconsin to rejoin my family. Uh, my family moved there. Uh, my wife and daughters moved there a month ago. And uh, the purpose was just to be closer to family. We've been out here in, in San Diego five years, five great years. Um, but we just wanted to get close to family support and, and uh, you know, bigger houses for cheaper prices, that sort of thing. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, there are more housing options there, huh? <laughs> There certainly are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, you're, you were saying earlier, your daughter just walked right into a, um, a, a preschool opportunity. That's right. So my daughter is five. She's too young for preschool. I'm sorry, she's too young for kindergarten here. Um, but they have a K-4 system, it's called, in Milwaukee. So it's a additional year of kindergarten, basically. And she walked right in. It's going to save us, or it's already saving us, like $1,000 a month. And... Um, you know, she gets that extra extra year support. Yeah, I hope, great. I'm glad my That's daughter amazing. doesn't listen to podcasts. Yeah, because she would She's have us mad, moved. isn't she? She <laughs> would have us moved to Milwaukee. Is it right there in the elementary school? Yeah, right there in the neighborhood school, close to home. That's cool. That's the way it should be. <laughs> All right, so let me paint the picture. So uh, Mario uh, joined us in I think uh, 2012, 2013, fall 2013. Yeah, so fall 2013. So almost five years, and. Uh, he came in, we kind of had a vague beat for you. We said something along the lines of investigate some nonprofit institutions and, and do some investigative work on education, right? And uh, Cindy Martin, the superintendent of San Diego Unified, had just started. She had just started in her role there. And you didn't know much about education, fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. I had been... Um I had been a teacher for a couple of years in, in uh, Denver, but it's, I don't know if this is common to teachers, but at least as, as a teacher, 
um, I didn't follow education outside of what was happening in my classroom or my school. So I really wasn't equipped to, that didn't equip me to be an education reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a little bit of background. So that, that knowledge, I think, helped me catch on a little bit quicker. But I certainly wasn't uh, uh, prepared yeah. in every way. What uh, And this happens with journalists a lot. There's a lot of people say, like, what makes you qualified to write about education? Well, we don't, we're not qualified to write about anything. We, we, what we do is go and investigate and learn and then try to, uh, re, you know, report out literally what we found out and how we found it out. And the people who do that best turn into great journalists and the people who don't aren't. And you were a great one. You did great work here. So what were some of the first things that you stumbled on that you had trouble grasping about education, the education system, about schools in San Diego and such? Yeah, I think I think schools in San Diego, the first the first thing that I had to wrap my mind around was the the school choice system uh, and just the just the uh, sort of infrastructure of schools that exists here is, is unique and entirely different than what I experienced in Wisconsin. I mean, I grew up in a smaller town city uh, where there was one school that you went to, and then you went to the middle school, and then you went to the high school. Um, and that's how it worked. So charter schools were new to me. Um, the school choice option was new to me. So, I mean, just that. It's kind of starting from, from zero in that way. Mm-hmm. And what about the unified school districts versus high school districts and elementary school districts. When I first moved to California, getting my arms around that also found it bewildering. Yeah, that that, that seemed odd for a while and <laughs> still seems a little bit different because I'm so used to reporting on San Diego Unified, but um, I guess I get the concept now. Right. <laughs> and I remember some of your earlier stories, you, you sort of honed in on discipline issues, right? What, what attracted you to that? Um. I think, I think the what attracted me to discipline issues is the same thing that attracts me to discipline issues now, which is that you're you're trying to at least manage student behavior, and I think teachers are doing the best they can at at trying to make classrooms is uh, trying to keep classroom students from disrupting classrooms, right? But when we talk about the way that discipline is is meted out. Um, and, and handled, there are all these unseen things that come into play that are that are easy to measure but difficult to attribute to any one thing, right? So, I mean, what we're essentially talking about is we're talking about the fact that African-American students are suspended at much higher rates than, than white students. And, I mean, that's pretty clear in the data. But getting to why that happens is a much thornier issue mm-hmm. so it's just sort of unpacking all of that and um what, what, what i found intriguing then and still find intriguing now mm-hmm. yeah you tackled that issue at a time when the system is really trying to approach it differently so what have you seen over time in the five years that you've been covering the discipline issue yeah so i've seen some major changes i think when i came in and i saw the the, the discipline rates i was where I think a lot of reporters are now, or at least some reporters are now, where the discipline rates are, they're disparate, right? They're, they're too high for African-American students. So what's the answer? The answer is not suspending uh, as much. And that seems sort of intuitive, right? Like, let's, let's stop suspending kids, because if kids aren't suspended, then they, then they, 
if kids are suspended and they're not in school, then they can't learn. But when we talk about what we see now, uh, is it four years after the dis- the school district changed its discipline policies, essentially softened um, the way in which students were disciplined. Um, what we're starting to see is some backlash to the way these these sort of soft on crime policies are are, are playing out, and that teachers, not just in San Diego but across the country, are starting to stand up and say, you know, these classrooms are becoming more chaotic, there's more violence, and there's simply a, a lack of consequences. So I think they, they, so they, they say that the, the lack of consequences is what's leading to, to more misbehavior. So it's this, it's, it's, now we're almost in a pushback to the response that we took in order to fix the problem. And what I see is, <clears throat> what I see a lot of policy analysts and reporters continue to miss in this conversation is that I think both things can be true at the same time. I think that there can be racial bias um, that lead to you know, over-suspension of African-American students. At the same time, there can be um, that the, the policies that are being implemented could be implemented poorly. I mean, one of the first things that um, um, the superintendent said was that when when she made the shift was that uh, schools would be given more support, more counselors in order to to deal with the student misbehavior, but that that simply didn't come through. Those those extra resources never really came to schools. Those extra counselors uh, weren't provided, so there was simply no way for uh, for uh, principals to to deal with that effectively. Is that fair? <clears throat> That's an interesting critique because I think what I'm sensing is that the what investigative reporting and accountability systems exist for local schools uh, are w- what does exist for them it is limited because it, it can expose things like the disproportion of suspensions but it has a difficult time grappling with the solutions to that right sort of managing the discussion about what you do because you can say like, well, there's a disproportionate suspension problem, and and then you can report on some of the things they they decided to do, but actually like evaluating those solutions is really hard, right? You know, you, you did a piece recently about Lincoln High School, um, a place that had adopted these these changes. It was trying to reduce the number of suspensions. There's a huge focus on reducing the total number of suspensions across the board, and yet hadn't really implemented an alternative to the point where there was there's some complaints that there's just there's nothing or there's very little to be done about some of the the behavioral problems there that there's uh, they're sending kids home for these sort of daily suspensions that don't count um then that restorative infrastructure is not in place right right and i think you know that's the that's the one piece that i think still can be and should be fleshed out i think that where y- we've yet to see uh, uh, the full scope of what's happening really in schools and the way students are being disciplined. Um, at, so you mentioned uh, the practice of sending students home, a, a practice known as blue slipping, right? You give a student a pass to go home instead of suspending him or her, and you don't have to document it as a suspension. Um, so Even though it's the same thing, basically. It, it is the same thing, and in yeah. some ways the student has less due process because it's not Mm-hmm. There's no documentation for it, and they can't um, uh, they can't respond to it. That sort of thing. Um, 
But we don't really know the extent of how widespread that is. So we're waiting on data for that, and hopefully we can get our hands around that at some point. But it's not just here. I mean, that Washington Post did a good story on that, and they were able to document how, at least get a glimpse of how pervasive that was. But I think that still, that still remains to be seen. And I think the one, the one question that raises is how reliable or how accurate are the suspension rates in that case if we're not really seeing the what's truly being we're not really seeing the full scope of of students who are being suspended so a follow up to your story about Lincoln Heights we might as well finish this train of thought out uh, there was they some of the people quoted in that were invited to the white house or to uh, DC to speak with education secretary uh, um, Betsy DeVos <laughs> And they, so what are, what's the, what's the alternative coming out from those sorts of quarters, the people who are grabbing onto this backlash and offering an alternative? Are they offering an alternative or are they just saying like, you know, the Obama era restorative justice thing is just not working? Yeah, I think I haven't seen a clear, um, a clear and detailed alternative to what's being done or what's currently being implemented. But what I had heard is just, yeah, a repeal to the uh, Obama era guidance, which was basically to to bring down suspension rates. Uh, people who who are, are advocating against it for that repeal are saying it basically amounts to a, a racial quota in suspension rates, which isn't a smart way to approach uh, behavior in any way. You can't simply say you can't mm-hmm. suspend a student based on their race. That's not fair either. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. I think that uh, Betsy DeVos has is, is yet to make any any firm decision on that yet, but there's a lot of people watching across the country. Mm-hmm. I have a follow-up question in terms of your role as a reporter and the accountability that you're providing. So um, you play a role in elevating an issue. The system responds, not just to you, but to other advocacy and um, even government directives. That's good. But then there's a change process, and it's uncomfortable. It's, it's We're asking the school systems to change something that's been ingrained for a long time, so it's going to be uncomfortable. There are going to be mistakes and pushback. How do you, as a reporter, as you're covering that change process, detect kind of normal um, reaction to a change that really needs to see itself through versus we're on the wrong track? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if if I could determine ever really whether or not we're on the right track or the wrong track, except for to take um, sort of take the temperature and take a snapshot of what's happening at any given time as a reporter. Um, you know, I can document the, the sort of missteps or what, what could be some of the backlash to that. But I think one thing that is true in this case, and I think is true in a lot of cases in education, is that we implement policies as a you know, public education system. We don't know that they work or not. We don't know if they're effective, but based on whatever there, there is, whatever the current movement is at the time, that's implemented and, and they move forward in that. And, and I think that's why we see this, if we take a step back and we, we talk to teachers who are retired, you know, they can tell you that some of the same educational policies that are being implemented today have been tried 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? It's the circular sort of, of pattern that we see in education. So mm-hmm. Let's uh, keep going back. I think uh, you, had, you had such an interesting experience trying to understand everything here and then start to build accountability reporting out of it. 
So let's start back. How did you first start really gaining momentum, investigating different things in the in the school districts? Uh, what, what was your first sort of success, do you feel like? Uh, one thing that I feel is hard in education reporting, and maybe this is true in any beat, but I can speak to it because education is what I did spent most of my time on. But education is a really tricky animal to report on because it's really reliant on access. And you need to build relationships with the, the people who are in charge of the schools in order to get granted access to see what's happening and in order to understand in the first place. So it's a really difficult line to walk. And I think even more so for a place like Voice of San Diego, which is you know, has a responsibility to tell, to explain, yes, and analyze, but also to, you know, hold the power, the powerful accountable. And that's a really tricky balance to try to strike in education, because if you go too far the other way, that access is closed off, right? And so I think probably in my trajectory as a reporter, I started and I came in and I had to work, sort of find my own way, right? And my own journey as an education reporter. And that was trying to be, um, uh, I wasn't necessarily trying to be uh, uh, friends with the people I was covering, but that's sort of how it felt I needed to be at the time in order to understand it. It was a friendly, more, uh, it was, it, there was more camaraderie, right? Um, over well, time. For instance, you spoke with, uh, uh, Cindy Martin here and there, right? Oh yeah. When, the superintendent of San Diego Unified. Right. When I first started, I spoke quite often with, and spent a lot of time with superintendent Cindy Martin. And I think that that was valuable in a lot of ways in helping me understand, at least helping me understand who she was and what she was trying to do. Um, I think that after, I forgot, I think it might have been two years on the beat when I finally broke with that. And I think the turning point was the series on uh, Marty Foster. Mm -hmm. And that was when at least I discovered in my reporting that some of the things that I had been told along the way, not just by Cindy, but by, you know, others, that there was more to the story than I had been led to believe. And that was really in reporting the series on Marty Foster, that was really a turning point in the relationship between the the district and I and Cindy and I, where I kind of became this this other reporter, and the access then closed off. But by that point, I I'm sorry. No, let's let's just take a second and describe what what you found and what was what that was about. So, uh, San Diego Unified School District has five board trustees, uh, school board members. Uh, Marty Foster was one of them. And you had started doing a series of, of stories. Basically, there was a weird ruckus that we had heard about that had been reported in other outlets, mostly alternative uh, outlets, San Diego Free Press, the, some of the blogs and such, had talked about um, a firing of a popular principal at the School for Creative and Performing Arts. So this was a district-managed school, but, a, but not a neighborhood-based school. It's a magnet-type school that attracts a lot of talented uh, kids from across the district to go to that school, right? Mm-hmm. And it's in southeastern San Diego. And uh, Marnie Foster, the trustee, had her son went to that school. And we had heard that uh, that he was bragging in some form that his mother was responsible for the, the principal being fired. Right, right, and so you you just decided to look into that after the was it the grand jury did a thing on it uh, the county grand jury, 
Yeah, the, the county grand jury had done a report on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, that grand jury report didn't really lay out the details. They didn't, they didn't include any names for some reason, but yeah. they laid out the, the, the gist of what had happened. Uh, and there were a number of other things, if you remember, Marnie Foster was involved with at that time. She had held the fundraiser, mm-hmm. um, invited people from the school district, but it turns out she was keeping the money uh, for her sons and you know giving it to them to raise money for college, which is not quite appropriate for a board member. So there was just a number of 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 things that that were weird uh, about what Marnie Foster was doing at the time. So it boiled down to an investigation of those things, and also the question of whether this trustee had abused her power uh, to push out this school principal who had, um, you know, given her, the trustee's son some bad evaluations, right? A bad evaluation uh, for a college recommendation. And uh, that that investigation became a big deal, right? Like that was, that, and I think that what's interesting about this is I see this all the time with reporters over the last 14 years is that the moment a reporter discovers that maybe they haven't been lied to, but they were misled or that they were just taken in a different direction than, than reality would dictate, they, they, something exp- lights up in their head and it's like, okay, <laughs> let's figure out what really happened and let's go all in. And that's what you did, right? Yeah, so um, the the story at, at the School of Creative Performing Arts, right, that you had highlighted a couple of weird things that were going on at the school, and right away we didn't jump on that story right away, and that's because we typically don't get involved in individual-type issues, right? We were trying to get into systemic problems. But that story just kept coming up. There was a, a blogger who kept writing about it. That story stayed alive for some reason. There was enough smoke to think that there was something there. And the interesting part, and I think the reason that it led to an investigation, and in the end a significant one, is because a school board member can't fire a principal on her own. It takes other people to approve those decisions. It takes a system to make that possible. And so I think that the reason that it was significant is you had a school board member who was, yes, acting inappropriately and eventually was punished for it. But what I think uh, that, that, that... revealed, and I don't know if we've ever seen the full scope of what what really went down, is what made that possible, who made that possible, and who approved those decisions, right? And so, you know, I think that just getting toward that, those systemic problems, are is what we do, and I think the most important piece of what we do is reporters. Yeah, she uh, later um, pled no contest or, or guilty to a, a small charge and in exchange uh, resigned her position. Mm-hmm. And the question that still remained was the, the district gave an all-out assault saying that this principal deserved to be fired and um, was done. that was done independently of the pressure that, the, that they admitted that this trustee was putting on the school district to fire this uh, principal. And and what we what we ended up at loggerheads with the district at is is whether we could understand exactly what went into that decision or not because it came amid a flurry of of these sorts of efforts right to uh, there was a whole turnover of principals and um, a lot of them were getting pushed into special roles at the at this district headquarters and so it kind of took there was like branches of this investigation that you kept going on. And um, it was it was a really interesting moment. Again, it, you feel like that was the moment where relations with the district sort of went south. 
Yeah, I felt like that was the moment where I had to sort of chart my own course. And it was also the moment where I thought I had gained enough context and enough knowledge where I could do that and find stories without any sort of access, um, which was a difficult thing. I think it took me some some time to really, um, once you once you break relations with a, a press person uh, and you realize that that those that press office isn't no longer going to support you or help you find information, you really have to 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 be creative and you really have to be resourceful in who you talk to and how you come across that information. And I think that took me some time to try to navigate that. But eventually, I think I found a way uh, to keep, you know, to keep reporting, to keep doing my job. Mm-hmm. One of the other uh, sort of significant investigative paths you went on was the more recent one about the the unified, Santa Unified's graduation rate. So there, um, there was an increase in standards in 2012. Uh, t- I'm sorry, 2000. When did they do A3? Yeah, I'm not sure. They they started moving toward A through G in 2009, which right. is, and then uh, in 2016 is when it first became a a, right. a graduation requirement. Mm-hmm. Right. So they decided that uh, all students who graduate from San Diego Unified School District should be prepared to have the minimum amount of qualifications to be in a California State University or UC school, and that's what's called the A through G requirements. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that was implemented first. It was it was the first class was the the 2016 class, the, tw- the class of 2016 was going to have to graduate with these. And there had been a study done at UC San Diego that they were not on track. And we had done some reports about how that cohort was not on track to graduate um, at that level very well. In fact, there was one uh, academic who said it would be uh, a miracle, miracle if, <laughs> if uh, a significant group got through. And, then we just then it happened. They got they announced a ninety one percent graduation rate, record high, higher than ever. Yeah, uh, in that cohort, and so we decided to just understand that. How did that happen? And you spent several months investigating how that happened. And basically, what what we found was that the graduation rate is not a measurement of the number of kids who start high school versus the number of kids who finish it. That it, in fact, is a, a cohort that's a different fraction of of the people who start and then finish but stay in the same sort of situation. So it doesn't count um, a number of kids who go to charter schools. It doesn't count the number of kids who move away. It doesn't count... Uh, basically, in other words, the number of kids who started high school is much bigger than the number of kids who finished. And so just understanding that. Now, we never, ever once said that they calculated things incorrectly. What you found was just that you found these batches of students, sometimes dozens or hundreds at a time, who had gotten mm, moved or or had uh, chosen to leave high school to go to a charter school, for example, because they were failing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, And that was interesting. That was all we said, right? There was a lot of people who, if they were factored, if, if they had stayed in San Diego Unified School Districts, managed schools, that graduation rate would not have been that level. What was, what, what, how did that investigation develop? And, and, you know, now that it's over or not, or, you know, taking another um, sort of last chapter, how did you think it turned out? 
Well, I think as you pointed out that this started from, and I think that's telling that it started with a very simple, um, with a very simple goal, which is to understand what goes into a graduation rate. And I still believe, I believe then, and I believe now that it shouldn't be this hard to understand where those where students go within a graduation rate. Um, there's, I understand that sure it might take some time in order to to uh, for the state to run its numbers, uh, to vet the school district's numbers, and to understand, yes, the student went here and the student went there, but we should ultimately be able to tell that, how many kids who started finished uh, within four years. And the ones who didn't, where did they go? Did they go to a different school? Did they go to a different state? Did, did they drop out? Did they drop out, right? And what we find is that there's all sorts of shades of, of, of I don't want to say shades of dropping out, but there's there's all sorts of things that can happen in between that we didn't really see, that at least I didn't see coming at the beginning. I didn't know that such a large chunk of students who left the school district would be going to schools where it was easier easier to graduate. and Or where they were highly unlikely to graduate. Right. The students who were least likely to graduate are, are the ones, in, in many cases, I think the majority of students who, who ended up leaving. And that doesn't mean the district necessarily is doing anything wrong, right? Even if it's counseling those students and and, and, and its teachers, I'm sorry, its counselors are, are, are suggesting that they go to these other schools. But it, it does factor in. It is a thing that's happening and it is worth talking about that if these students aren't going to graduate from the district, that's worth, that's a pretty big asterisk on the the graduation rate, or at least it's an inter- interesting point to understand for the public, right? If especially if if the school district's goal, as I think they've articulated, is to keep students in these district managed schools, and so if if they're not staying, then why is it so offensive to look at why not? Why like where are they going and not? And that was what was so interesting. They pushed back so hard, I think, because they took it as an existential challenge that you were challenging like their you know a fundamental accomplishment as opposed to you know going through this with you as a as an effort to truly understand you know why they weren't necessarily keeping some of these kids in the district and what they could do to do that yeah and to help the public understand that as well yeah mario you did that that set of stories at the same time that other education journalists around the country were looking deeper at graduation rates and in um in D.C. and L.A. and in whole states as well, did you did you talk to other ed- education reporters who were on similar beats? Did you learn from them? Like how did how did the national context for this story play into your own reporting? I think the national context certainly encouraged me. Uh, the national reporter that was reporting that was going on. I think around the time when I first started really digging in, NPR had a pretty big series where they pulled in reporters from across the country to to understand uh, uh, why graduation rates were at an all-time high and what was going on. And reporters in various areas would find things like, uh, well, online credit recovery classes are helping. Or um, in Chicago, they found that they were simply miscalculating the students who were, I think, leaving for a GED program or including them as graduates when that wasn't allowed by state law. So while yes, the graduations are rates are rising across the country. It, it's not just the case that in San Diego there are these uh, there's this 
more to the story, uh, ways that this is made possible than the average person would maybe understand. This is happening, I think, everywhere and in many school districts. And maybe it's a feature of this this uh, focus on on graduation rates as a measure of success in and of themselves. Um, you know, I, I, that seems to be the case, but, you know, I am not in the, the hearts and minds of, of district officials everywhere. Do we no, see? that's true with two of the stories we've talked about just now, the graduation rates, but also the discipline rates, that if you shine a big spotlight on one particular statistic, you put a lot of pressure on the system to change that statistic, and the incentives are there for people to... Um, get the number to move through through you know through lots of different strategies some you know hopefully many of them beneficial but also the incentives are there to sort of shade um, you know shade your practices in ways that move the number yeah it, it like you say like the in Atlanta they had the testing scandal wasn't there a big graduation rate scandal in DC mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and so again there's there's actual there's a spectrum there's actual cheating versus like just different techniques and such. And I think what this, what I would have loved to explore more deeply with the district is just what is the meaning of graduation? And had they been willing to be a little bit more vulnerable with us through this process, I think we could have truly explored like what are we doing to the definition of what an education in K-12 actually means? Like what are we trying to communicate when we say somebody has graduated because it feels like we're really messing or just at least redefining what that means, you know, with some of these uh, recovery courses, with some of these uh, alternative paths that you can take to graduate. What does it mean to graduate? Well, yeah, I'm in the workforce system now and employers are saying that we've got more candidates coming in with high school degrees, but not necessarily more candidates with the skills they need to succeed in the jobs that we're offering them. So there, yeah, there's a big reckoning happening now as a result of this intense focus that we put on grad rates. Before I leave that uh, topic, there are there, the school district did in response to this work, uh, impanel a group of people to look into the graduation rates and our reporting and the other some of the uh, academic work that's been done since then, there was a, a review of our work and the graduation rate done by that academic at UC San Diego, where he found basically the same thing, that if if those kids who left for charter schools had been included and stayed in the district managed schools, the graduation rate would have been significantly lower than what they reported, but they, they didn't, they left. Um, and there was another part of your reporting that had said that had shown like how easy it was and students and teachers had shown you how easy it was to cheat on some of those online tests. And, and he had reported that there was no proof that they had cheated, but (laughs) it didn't really unprove anything either. And it was the kids who were showing us, but that's fine. What's the, what's happening now with that, with that discussion? Yeah. So, uh, as you pointed out, there's, uh, there was a graduation committee put together. Um, uh, there was a, a, a PR consultant in town hired to disseminate that work for some reason. Um, and so he's, he's, they are meeting, I think they've met three times now, uh, if I recall, and they're preparing that report. The report should be published soon. I've seen a draft of it. Um, it, is, it is similar to the things that we've seen so far. Um, it is um, 
I think, in an effort to explain what had happened, um, but also highlight the ways in which the district was successful um, in in moving this needle. And look, we never said that the district didn't deserve any credit for 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 you know scouring these student transcripts and making sure students were in the right classes and, and things of that nature. Um, but what we see now is that for some of the things that the district was most defensive about, um, they are essentially taking steps to make sure that happens. And in that sense, it's a, it's a, it's a win. I'm talking about um, the fact that we, we know students go uh, a certain large number, significant, at least significant number of students leave high school at some time, district manage high school and go to a charter school. And at some point somebody said, hey, it's a good idea that we have graduation measures that reflect both numbers, or we at least know how many students are leaving. I think Julian Betts said that, the researcher from UCSD. So I think that's one thing that district is adopting. So in the future, despite the de- defensiveness, we may have more clarity on what a graduation rate means and where students are actually going. Well, yeah, and these charter schools are part of the district. <laughs> like we should, if we evaluate the district's graduation graduation rate, like we should have a way, even with a nuance of some kind, to understand just truly how all of them, how, how students who enter freshman year of high school end up at all. I mean, there's this, this um, I know why there is a polarization between the charter schools and the district managed schools. I understand why that's there and I understand the, the dynamics behind it. But also like the district invests in charter schools it it spends money building them it's it oversees their charters it you know it does a number of things to influence how they they turn out or what they do and and so we should understand how that's working too you know there's no reason why this has to be only about the district managed schools or only about charter schools like this is a whole portfolio of of, of people teaching our kids. So let's understand how they're doing. Mm-hmm. All right. So one of the things you're, we asked you to finish up on and you, you proposed too, was to do a, um, uh, a five-year sort of synopsis of how Superintendent Cindy Martin has done at the district. And, uh, you know, uh, what have you found so far? What are you, what are you thinking about as you pull that together? Uh, well, it's been it's been reflective for me too. I think the piece is reflective, but it's also uh, a look back at my time and when I first remember uh, a meeting Cindy Martin and sort of the landscape that she that she found when she stepped in her role as superintendent. And when you think about the time in 2013 uh, when she came in, um, there was a lot going for Cindy in that role. She had a fully supportive uh, school board who had all sort of chosen her. Um, and were fully supported and invested in her success. Um, there appeared to be uh, a, a bright, brightening financial picture, more money coming in. Uh, bonds had just been passed, a pair of bonds that totaled $5, million, $5 billion. Um, so it seemed like the district was flush. And um, and looking back now, after five years, you have you start to question, um, well, you, you ask the question, uh, what what is there to show for it, or what what can we point to now? And I think that's a that's still a challenging um, uh, question to answer. It's one I'm, I'm grappling with for this story. Um, you know, there are measures that we can point to that say C- Cindy has been successful, or at least there's been success under Cindy's term. Right, the the graduation rates, as you pointed out, um, state test scores, the have been 
have been rising, although the the achievement gap has been, you know, a bit stagnant and stubborn. Um, so the the interesting part to this is that Cindy Martin was in un, uh, sort of a, an experiment, uh, a thought experiment by the board, uh, a response to these years of accountability-driven sanctions in the years of no child left behind. And she would step into this time when there, when that was sort of going out of fashion, or at least the, there was a current movement to put that stuff out of fashion. And there was a belief that if we, if we set those things aside and if we focused on what truly mattered, if we focused on a feeling that Cindy Martin talked about, this feeling of, of a quality school and a quality teacher, then test scores and these measures that we cared about would, would counterintuitively go up. Right. And now we, we're looking at that and we, we see that they haven't exactly exploded. We see that they that they're difficult to really quantify where the successes are. And I guess it's not surprising that when you start out by saying these measures don't matter, that in the end, it's difficult to find where those measures have gone up. The. So one of the things that uh, she, you know, she was a she was an elementary school principal who was suddenly and without any public process and nobody. This isn't a controversial point. Without any public process, without any even open meetings, she was uh, uh, put into the role of superintendent of the second largest school district in in the in the state, and. One of the things she did focus on and really work on was replacing principles that she said basically she believes the principal was the you know backbone of so many different schools and so important to so many different schools and had a had a soft power. you know when i ever whenever I asked her about the ability to fire and hire teachers or whatever or have flexibility in leadership, she would always describe what you can do to counsel a struggling teacher out of the situation or to even ask them to leave you the the soft power that she said that principals could could lead with she really did replace dozens of teach uh, principals across the district right yeah that that part is true i mean she she did um you know they talk about People still talk about years ago, there was a superintendent, um, Alan Burson, who was well known for his, uh, you know, firing principals or moving principals around. Um, and it would be interesting to compare uh, the number of principals that he moved around to the number of principals that Cindy moved around, um, because it, it, it really is, uh, she really was uh, a major change agent, at least for that. And we know that when principals leave schools, at least research shows that that's disruptive. Um, their, their thinking was, and their explanation was a couple of years ago, that she was putting the right people in place. And uh, yes, there were going to be a lot of changes, but we were going to see the results in a couple of years. Um, and I think, I think if you were to ask, if you were to ask some of the school board members, Richard Breer, I think, in particular, might tell you that we're still waiting uh, on we're still waiting on those results that they'll be coming, but they're, they are going to be positive and they're going to be real. It's an interesting comparison, Cindy Martin, to Alan Burson, because they're both longstanding um, for urban superintendents. Cindy's been there for five years now. I think Alan Burson was there for seven years. 
Um, by the end of his tenure, he was a very polarizing figure from reports of folks who were in the district and worked with him. You either loved him or you absolutely couldn't stand him. And the, the couldn't stand him camp won out after seven years. Cindy's and not quite C- so polarizing, I would say. Cindy was a product of that system. She worked with him. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think um, I think it's fair to say it was more aligned with him than not. Mm-hmm. Um, not that she's emulating his strategies, except perhaps in this, you know, in the importance of the principalship. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're looking at that comparison. I think it's important. Yeah, actually... And I think Cindy Martin and Ellen Burson are a, a lot more alike than than people realize. Um, I think if you know, I think if I recall, Cindy had told me this that she um, thought she was quite a bit like Ellen Burson in the fact that they were driving major reforms and they were driving major reforms based on instruction. Now, Ellen Burson was remembered, and I think the first thing that uh, members of the teachers' union will point out for the word top-down reforms. In a lot of ways, Cindy has made a lot of those top-down reforms. Now, the major difference is that Alan Burson, if I never met him, but what I'm told, did it with sort of a, a heavy hand and an iron fist. and was. But Cindy does it with this sort of the sweet rhetoric, right? So there's it's like the image is different, but the, the reforms are, and at least the approach, is very similar. Mm. Let me ask you one of the, this last topic, and we'll do a couple of reflections, but... One of them, one of the principles that's been interesting to watch is, is this issue of tro- choice in neighborhood schools. She started her tenure very clearly saying we want a high quality edu- uh, school in every neighborhood. And uh, I pressed her as, as well, how would we measure that? She said, we'll figure out that. But, but uh, throughout the term, then there was this kind of pressure that seemed to peak at times to really rein in the choice system. Uh, there was uh, some uh, clamp down from here here and there on the on some of the charters that were applying. Uh, uh, there was a there was a couple of pieces of rhetoric that came up from people like uh, Trustee John Lee Evans saying like, you know, we need to make sure that kids stay in their neighborhoods. And and you started to also explore the um, issues of race in that, you know, and, and of segregated schools in that. What's the status of the neighborhood school push and um, and what's next with that, do you think? So a uh, couple of things. I'm still waiting on data I, for that <laughs> for the, from the district. So I asked the data for, for I asked the district for data on, on, on its progress. Um, I asked, also asked Richard Barrera uh, yesterday, in fact, about this, the status of of its neighborhood schooling push. And essentially, he said that it's not a data story yet, that the data isn't going to bear out their success yet, but it's going to be coming. It's, it's again, it's this sort of intangible feeling where if you were to go to uh, the average parent who goes to their neighborhood school now is going to have a better feeling than they used to have. That those things aren't measured, but are measurable, but this is a thing that's real. Now, <clears throat> You pointed out it's pretty measurable. You can see how many parents are choosing their neighborhood school versus choosing outside of their neighborhood school, <laughs> and they do parent surveys as well. Right. So, yeah. So there are ways to measure it. There, there are ways to measure it, um, but apparently, uh, the data isn't showing the true scope of the success yet. Mm. So we're talking about um, 
you know, and he brought up points, Scott, that you just mentioned, that he said if they wanted to, okay, if we back up a step in 2009, I think is when they started, John Lee Evans is given credit for uh, being the architect of this plan is the, the quality school in every neighborhood where students don't have to, to leave their neighborhood in order to get to a quality school, right? Um, that sounds great. And, and I think all of us, I would want that. I think a lot of us would want that. Um, but the reality is, is that I want to say around 2011, when they first, when they measured it in 2011, about 44% of parents chose schools outside of their, their neighborhood. And five years later, it was around the same. I think it was either 44 or 42%. So within that five-year time span of push, that really hadn't moved a deal. Now, something Richard Barrera had pointed out was that, hey, look, if we wanted to, if we wanted to, if that was our only measure of success, we could have just closed down the choice program because then kids would have to go to their schools, their, their quality. I'm sorry, they would have to go to their neighborhood schools. And then in, in a sense, we'd, we'd be more successful. Um, of course, the challenge in doing that is that if they did do that, parents might leave the district altogether, which mm-hmm. they'd suffer even worse uh, declining enrollment. Mm-hmm. And then some of the choice programs are also what even keep some of the north of eight schools in business, like Mission Bay High School wouldn't wouldn't work without, what is it, like 70, 80% of their students come from outside the neighborhood, right? Right, right. So choice is important in that way too. Hmm. Well, um, Mario, if you went back four or five years and talked to uh, younger Mario and, and said like, hey man, you need to keep this in mind about reporting on education, what would you tell him? Um, it's a good question. You know, I think I would probably tell my younger self to, um, to, to not sweat the, not sweat the haters. Right. I remember when you started, when I started and Scott, you remember this too. Um, I took it, we got, I took pushback and, uh, criticism very personally and it really distracted me from what was really important. I think over the years, maybe I had gotten a little bit better at reporting or maybe I just got more confident or used to the criticism. Um, it didn't, it, it stopped affecting me or stopped affecting me as much. And then I think it would be a reminder or at least, uh, I would try to impart on myself, uh, that you don't need that access in order to tell, uh, it, in order to tell stories that you don't need that access in order to, to be an education reporter, that there's always a way and you don't have to sort of uh, cowtail to to you know people who want to make you feel bad just for trying to tell the truth and and get to the truth. Hmm. And uh, what what's if you you know if you were to stay here and keep reporting, what would be the the stories you'd chase? Um, I think well, as a, I think that that trying to pin down. The real measure of suspension rates would be one worth chasing, always worth following Lincoln High. I think that that is something to keep your to keep our eye on. Um, Lincoln High is uh, still facing a number of challenges that have yet to be sorted out, and it's facing an, an upcoming WASC review, which is it's for its accreditation, which um, some people on the ground believe it won't pass. So if uh, Lincoln, what's a WASC review? WASC review. Do you know what? I forgot what WASC stands for. Western. I uh, can't remember what it stands for either. But it's an accreditation that high schools have to earn from every, the state or from the, the federal government. 
think the state contracts with WASC, which is a regional organization. I'm mm-hmm. not 100% sure about that. I think that's true, yeah. And um, they come through. It's basically an audit that's done at the school. They talk to teachers. They talk to, I think, parents, I believe. Um, they look under the hood. And if the school on paper doesn't match what they're seeing in reality, um, this school could be school might not pass. And if it doesn't pass, then the diplomas that it gives to kids are are basically worthless and they don't count. Um, So the school would have to, I I don't know what would happen from there. It would have to possibly close down. At least students would leave. Why would a student go there if they weren't uh, uh, getting credit for it? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, on behalf of uh, everybody here and uh, and, um, some of your many followers and, and readers, Thank you for your service and uh, and stay in touch. All right, thank you. Yeah, Mario, yeah. I just want to tell everybody that your your reporting is really exceptional, and um, I digest a lot of education reporting from around the country. But I just have found yours to be just high quality, the right level of detail, the right level of testimony from people on the ground who really are seeing what's happening, paired with understanding of the policy issues. Um, it's been great to to follow your reporting and to chat with you about it over the years. So. We'll miss you here in San Diego. Thank you. I'll miss you guys too. Thanks for listening to Voices San Diego Podcasts. This show is part of the Voices San Diego Podcast Network. Visit voiceofsandiego.org slash podcast. There, you'll learn more about our award-winning arts and education podcast, Culture Cast and Good Schools for All, the Cura Chaos podcast about movers and shakers on both sides of the border, Beer Talk Radio, our business show, I Made It in San Diego, our sports show, The Kept Faith, and the rest of the shows in the network. Voice of San Diego is a nonprofit. The majority of our budget comes from grants and donations from readers and listeners like you. If you like the show, please take a minute to go to VoicesSanDiego.org and click the Donate button. Or if you have a business and would like to sponsor the show, contact development at VoicesSanDiego.org or call 619-550-5664.